Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, you're tuning into Movie Oubliette, a podcast reviewing forgotten films with me, Dan, down in the Southern Hemisphere in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, up in the Northern Hemisphere in Cambridge, UK. So we'll be mainly discussing fantastical cinema, so horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because we just love creaky doors, pew-pews and sword clangs. (laughs) Conrad... How are you today? I'm very well. I'm very excited and happy for numerous reasons. Primarily because last night I went to the Royal Albert Hall to see a concert of John Williams' music. It was meant to be conducted by the man himself, but unfortunately he was uh, taken ill. So uh, he wasn't there in person, sadly, but he was listening in from his uh, hospital bed, we understand. So we were all cheering him on oh. and wishing him a speedy recovery from the Royal Albert Hall. So, But yeah, it was a magical night with the London Symphony Orchestra and they played all the hits. Yes. Jurassic Park and oh. Superman and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Schindler's List. It was, yeah, really good. Any, any standout performances <laughs> well they had fun in the encore and they decided to uh, yeah come back and and play one more hit and <laughs> the conductor just signaled to the percussion that he wanted them to rumble and then he pointed at the celli and they just went bottom <laughs> wow <laughs> and the whole of the albert hall went wild oh my god and uh and then we got the Jaws theme tune, which yeah. is not the most complicated theme for the London Synth to play. Two just, alternating just notes, two notes getting progressively yeah. loud. Yeah. But they did it with gusto and everyone clapped and, and cheered along. Mm. So, yeah, it was quite a fun evening. It was really oh, wow. good. Wow, it sounds amazing. How about yourself? Yes, I've been doing well. Uh, my wife at the moment is going through a plastic free. <laughs> It's not a stage; it's a, a lifestyle choice. <laughs> so we're we're oh re- reducing plastic and packaging. So she she spends most of her weekends going around to about eight different stores, <laughs> um, buying things, um, bringing her own containers and jars and stuff. But um, I think it's a good choice. I, I feel like single use plastics is the bane of of our existence at the Mm. moment and we should stop it now yeah this is when you discover just where there's this plastic everywhere yeah Yeah. almost impossible to avoid it Mm. so no buying new dvds that are shrink wrapped (laughs) for you then uh well i mean yeah i I think i think my wife is a lot a hundred percent into this uh, thing, whereas <laughs> I'm maybe at eighty percent there. So every so often, I I buy something that I know has packaging, and I have to hide it from her, or eat the <laughs> snack secretly in the corner and hide my evidence. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> so lots of single-use plastic stuck down the side of the sofa now. <laughs> 
Yeah, I've got a trapdoor that I'm just I'm just hoarding all these plastic packaging. Well, speaking of trapdoors, yeah, he says in a very smooth segue. Uh, <laughs> is it time to visit the oubliette and to find a film for us to discuss today? Mm, it surely is. Yes, I will. I will do the honors today. Marvelous. Okay, over by the oubliettes. Mm. <laughs> oh, well, they're quite biting today, aren't they? Mm. Okay, I got it. All right, so I have the film with me, and I also have a very special guest. Mm, Yes, our special guest today is a writer-director. He's the man behind the Crazy in Love segment of the horror anthology The Signal, the Amateur Night segment of VHS, and made his feature debut with a film I really enjoyed and was very excited about when I caught up with it earlier this year, The Ritual. Mm. We're very excited to welcome David Bruckner. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's very exciting to have you here. Now, you chose um, the movie that we'll be discussing today, so uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so I don't know what the title is uh, across the world in various markets, but in the United States, it's known as Cemetery Man, Uh, Mm. and uh, the movie was directed by Michele uh, Sovi, I believe that's the right pronunciation, and... uh, in 1994, and and this for me is a a movie that I watched a lot with uh, kind of my group in college. It was just something that we would put on late at night and it felt like an odd discovery. It was sort of, no one in our world had really seen it or heard of it. And so I probably watched this movie 10, 15 times in college. Like I remember it pretty well. It's pretty embedded in there and it's probably accidentally formative for me in the way I think about lots of movies, but I hadn't seen it in maybe 15, 16 years. You know, it was just something that's kind of back there bouncing around in the synapses. And so uh, when we started talking and you guys asked the question, you know, what's a what's a movie that you feel has been forgotten? And, um, you know, in my world, it instantly came to mind and I thought mm-hmm. I, I owed it another watch. So it was an absolute joy to put the movie on and watch it for the first time in a long time. And uh, I've spent a lot of time with movies and horror cinema since then, so a lot of the things in the movie have different meanings to me now, or I understand them uh, in a different context uh, in terms of the genre. But uh, also, I'm just astonished at how insane the movie is. And sometimes <laughs> I feel modern films don't don't take the same flavored risks that that movies used to, and uh, on a whole different uh, on a whole different fronts, both in the visual style and what it takes on and uh, how much they embrace the symbolic nature of it. But um, I would describe this in short as uh, something of a batshit Italian giallo, <laughs> high art zombie movie meets screwball comedy meets existential meditation on love and death. Beyond that, I think it's fair game what any of us want to say about it. I think this movie is also probably a bit of a Rorschach. So. Uh, I would say everybody's going to have a different interpretation. Mm. Yeah, how would we? How would you guys? Uh, how would one summarize the plot if they had? To? Okay, so do you want to have? Do you want to have a go down? <laughs> I have a, a, a plot synopsis that I've written out. So, Cemetery Man centers around Francesco della Morte, a cemetery caretaker who has to deal with the dead coming back to life as zombies with the help of his slow-witted assistant Nagi. Like you said, so many things happen in the movie that 
are almost pointless. Uh, Francesco falls in love with a widow who continues to die but returns as entirely different characters played by the same actress, uh, tormenting his lovesick obsession. And Nagi falls in love with the mayor's daughter's reanimated severed head. Uh, a fatal <laughs> uh, busload of Boy Scouts returns from the dead. Death pops in to say hello. And all the while, Francesco slowly descends into madness and starts casually killing the living culminating in a surreal <laughs> and almost nonsensical conclusion. So that's what I have anyway. <laughs> well put. Well put. <laughs> yeah, that's a very courageous attempt at summarising <laughs> the plot of this plotless movie. So let's take a break and uh, come back and discuss it some more. Can't wait. And we're back to discuss Cemetery Man with writer-director David Bruckner, who dragged it biting and clawing from the oubliette. <laughs> I'd never seen this one before. Dan, had you seen it before? No, I've never seen this movie before either. Um, I've, I'm always on the lookout for really obscure, ridiculous movies. So it's been on my radar for a while, but um, no, it's, it's, I've never seen it. And also Rupert Everett, is. I've, I only know him from My Best Friend's Wedding. <laughs> Right. Where he just plays a the the lovable uh, gay best friend. Mm. So yeah, pretty shocking to see him. In <laughs> Should say the I guess the Italian title is uh, Della Morte Della More, mm -hmm. which seems which has a different vibe than Cemetery Man. It's just kind of occurring to me that it was like I think when I heard it titled Cemetery Man, it started with a laugh. Yes. So I'm always interested in what the, you know, if 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 you knew the title in a different way, Della Morte, Della More seems to take itself a little more seriously, mm -hmm. but maybe not. Oh, for sure. Well, that's certainly what it's it's called here. Oh, yes. Ah. Yeah. So it was only just released on Blu-ray by Shameless, which is a label that specializes in rare and extreme cinema. Mm. Um, so, yeah, HD for the first time, which was quite exciting. Amazing. Yeah. So, Delamorte Delamore, it's based on a novel by Tiziano Sclavi. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> but he's most famous in Italy, certainly, for creating a series of horror comics called Dylan Dog mm. uh, about a paranormal investigator. And the title character, Dylan, is visually very much based on the appearance of Rupert Everett. Oh. So when Michele Suave came to adapt Delamorte Delamore into a feature, they very much wanted Rupert to be involved. Uh -huh. And I think this was before My Best Friend's Wedding, so I think that Rupert wasn't as famous or as busy, shall we say, <laughs> Yeah, and he wasn't aware of the whole Dylan Dog phenomenon, and I think he was quite charmed and wanted to be involved. They took several stabs at writing it, and one of the approaches they took was to to make it a straight giallo thriller with a central mystery about a killer on the loose, and some elements of that remain. Mm -hmm. But um, Rupert wasn't interested in that at all. He rejected that. He wanted to make the sort of formless, episodic, surrealist film. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, that's what they, they ended up with, which structurally is, is, is quite hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm glad you mentioned that it was episodic because watching it last night and just putting, you know, just spending a lot of time working on movies these days and being immersed in structure, 
I was kind of blown away by how structureless it was. And it seems to move through these different chapters, all that affect, you know, the caretaker at the cinema, at the cemetery and the, uh, who's Rupert Everett's character and, uh, and, uh, and the zombie apocalypse that is sort of brewing, but seems kind of to be his only his problem in some way or another. But. Yeah. I mean, there are various threads to pull at here. Probably the most structurally interesting thing is the love story, hmm. because I'm not sure if it's meant to be the same woman that he is meeting over and over again. I mean, it kind of put me in mind of Anomalisa, this sort of delusion that all of the characters that you're meeting are the same person. One critic that I read even suggested that it was um, a reflection on the central character's misogyny, that all women are the same and they're all heartbreakers. Oh, okay, but... all right, all right. It's definitely very, it's definitely like the sexual politics of it certainly feel from a different era and it's a touch male gazy in that sense. Mm. But the effect of, from the central character, you know, from the caretaker, Francesco Della Morte's like own kind of uh, torment wrestling with love, the just the stylistic effect of every time he falls in love being played by the same actress. Mm. Uh, it's often revealed very cleverly that she's back. Mm. And the impact of that is quite startling just in the experience of watching it. From, uh, it's a, it's a good kind of stylistic maneuver. I mean, I think there's one moment where he meets um, two college girls who are trying to get a ride from him and he's distraught and uninterested and uh, and he's talking to the one girl and you can tell there's another girl standing behind her and then her hand falls on her shoulder and draws the attention of your eye and it pans up or tilts up and you and you discover Anna Fauci, who is the, the actress, uh, you know, playing his repeated lover again. And it's always um, a bit haunting uh, those moments. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I thought that I thought that held up in really interesting ways. I mean, I, I think it helps that they chose her as well because she's just a visually stunning actress and the most amazing eyes and really pouty mm. lips. Um, but yeah, every time she appears, she has this very uh, noticeable presence. Yeah, she does. And it has to be said that Rupert is not exactly uneasy on the eye. He's in good form in this. And the thing that I found quite startling is that we do get some full frontal male nudity in this movie from Rupert. Ah, oh, it could have been your cut because I don't think I saw the full frontal nudity in my, my version. So. <laughs> Maybe my HD version of it was matted incorrectly. <laughs> but there is... <laughs> There is a moment where he picks up Anna Falke in his arms and stands up naked and, yeah. Oh. There's a whole lot of Rupert on display. Right. <laughs> um, I love that there's a, there's a lot of, there's several kind of, uh, they almost feel like macabre romance novel, almost softcore sex scenes in graveyards. Yeah. Surrounded by, you know, some of the... It just really dark and creepy detritus, but it has a look and feel all its own. Like there's a very pulpy quality to it, but those it's, it's interesting because those, you know, the nature of just those kinds of extended indulgent kind of uh, lurid sex scenes are uh, really something from a, also from a different era. Like you just don't mm -hmm. see this in movies and television very much anymore. 
Yeah, it's quite interesting to see a woman who is immediately excited at the mention of and becomes sexually aroused by an ossuary. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, her, I think her quote <laughs> is when when they when they enter the ossuary, she says, "I have never seen anything so exciting." <laughs> and then Francesco just replies, "Neither have I." As they enter this <laughs> decrepit, flooded ossuary full of rotten corpses and <laughs> it's, and bones, yeah, and it's a real one as well. They're actually filming in a real ossuary, and <laughs> and she takes her shoes off and immediately starts wading into it. <laughs> well, this is different for a first date, okay? <laughs> yes, and then and then they proceed to uh, make love on her dead husband's gravestone. So yeah, <laughs> which he doesn't take very kindly to it, has to be said. Mm, no, there's an underlying theme of sex and death in here, and again, we were talking about vertigo when we were discussing the vanishing a couple of episodes ago. And there is quite a strong visual reference to Vertigo here again because you have the scene where the lovers are kissing and they are standing on a platform that's rotating with, you know, with the camera. So the background behind them is just sort of swirling around. Yeah, it's um, a very dizzying scene as well. It is. <laughs> just yeah. like, stop, just stop. <laughs> yeah, and noticeably the second time it happens, the uh, the version of Anna Falke there, or she as she's credited, uh, actually gets off the ride. She actually steps off and rejects him mm -hmm. um, because although she was afraid of penises originally, she has <laughs> since been raped and gotten over her fear of penises and is quite happy to is marry the mayor. Is it the mayor that she's going yeah. to marry? Yeah. So that was a very odd scene. I mean, they were in love mm. um, completely inexplicably. Um, and then she admits to being... Yeah, afraid of penises, and then he proceeds to try to get castrated. I guess, <laughs> and then she yeah. decides that she's cured because she's been raped, and and now she loves loves the penis. Yeah, I, I didn't know, and that was there was a, such a fascinating subplot with him where everyone in the town thought of him as being impotent. Yeah, but apparently it was a lie. And it's strange because you know his character is so. Uh, indifferent to the, the the sort of the trials of life and death but he's got a certain ego about this like the things that he really cares about are kind of love and at times it almost seems like his you know um uh, and nagi and his friendship with nagi and whatnot and uh and the impotence thing is like it's one of the only values that he has is he seems really resistant to the idea that that's the case and then yeah to your point she comes back and is like that's the only way i can love a man and he's just ready to do it. And there's this high comedy scene where he goes into the doctor's office and says, I want to take it off. Yes. <laughs> and the doctor says, are you sure? Are you out of your mind? He's like, yes, get rid of it. Do it now. And uh, <laughs> and then they get rolled into this, uh, into this surgery chamber. And it's like, I mean, wide angle lenses and giant pairs of scissors. And it's like something, <laughs> you know, straight out of a Terry Gilliam movie and just so over the top. And uh, mm. and I guess he ends up settling for kind of a, a chemical, a temporary chemical castration at that mm. point. But mm. um, uh, yeah, it's really, I don't know what to do with much of that, um, except that maybe it has something to do with, I, I don't know, sacrifice or again, the, uh, something to do with the male ego. I didn't really know it. it the, the sexual undercurrents of it got into such bizarre territories at that part of the movie. I, I was a little lost 
but uh, but generally fascinated and bewildered as I remain with this movie. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> My interpretation of the movie, which <laughs> I, I tend to put on a lot of movies, is he dead? Is this some sort of limbo, in limbo, hell, torture ah. world that he's going through where he has to continually fall in love and for his love to die over and over and over again. And then when he tries to leave the world, it's just a cliff to the abyss to nowhere. <laughs> um, I don't know. It just got more and more confusing as the film got on. And, and then the credits rolled and I, I was just really confused. <laughs> Now, there's, there is a lot going on in this movie in terms of um, them existing in, in very contained spaces. Mm. There is the contained world of the cemetery where people keep coming back to life and Francesco has this job of, well, self-appointed job. No, he's being paid for it, isn't he, actually? Yeah, he's being paid to shoot people that have returned, as he calls it. And that's contrasted with the world outside the town, which is just a parody of Italian corrupt small town life and just a ridiculous, pointless bureaucracy as well. He has a best friend who works in an office that just seems to be surrounded by piles and piles of paper and forms and it all seems to be pointless and there's a, a chief of police who refuses to recognise that Della Morti is probably the guy that's randomly killing people, even though it's blatantly <laughs> obvious yes. in, in many, many scenes. And just visually, apart from the, the snow globe, which you see at the beginning and you see right at the very end and realise that the two characters in it are actually Francesco and Yagi, mm. you also have the scene in the hospital the final very brutal mass murder scene where he's visiting... Franco. Franco, yes, visiting his friend Franco. And he's sort of enclosed, there's this really lovely wide shot looking down on them where they just sort of seem to be enclosed in these hospital screens in the middle of a black space, almost mm. like it's a, a theatre production or they're just in an abyss somewhere. Mm. So there just seems to be this recurring visual motif of these very confined spaces that everybody seems to appears to be fruitlessly trapped in. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was your take on that, David? Uh, no, I'm just thinking as you're saying it, I mean, yeah, drawing all this together actually reminds me of um, some of the dollhouse stuff in hereditary, mm. but yeah, it's it, it. And I think the way you put it, Dan, too, the idea that it is, you're constantly coming back to the idea that he's, it's a, it's a visual representation of the fact that he's trapped, but he's also kind of trapped in a cycle yeah. of, you know, endlessly falling in love and losing love and sort of lost in the inevitability of death. And it's sort of, uh, if one were to look at him as every man, he's, he's also sort of there to comment on the fact that everyone around him is in the same perilous cycle and just endlessly tormented by love, drawn into it, uh, either death pulls it away from you or the circumstances of life and then you have to return because there's all these periphery subplots about people sort of tormented and lost uh, by their love interest. I mean, there's mm -hmm. Nagi's, you know, very perverse and weird obsession with the mayor's daughter, which I had totally forgotten yes. about until I saw the movie again. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I totally forgot the other caretaker fishes a dead woman's head out of her grave and makes friends with it. And... <laughs> <laughs> and it and and then there's that amazing shot where the where the, the 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 headless daughter goes after the mayor 
and they have like a Bill Plimpton <laughs> shot with cameras inside the zombie head's mouth and you can see the teeth coming down over the lens. And <laughs> I just love it. Yeah. But um, uh, but then uh, but then yeah, you had the entire subplot with Claudio who she had a crush on and then the other, um, the local Italian woman who uh, loved Claudio and Claudio of course died in the tragic bus accident and then uh, he was uh, buried on his motorcycle, quite the leather jacket, motorcycle riding kind of uh, bow. And so they buried him with his motorcycle. And of course, when he's reborn, he comes tearing out of the ground, uh, zombie Claudio riding on his motorcycle. Yep. A scene I also forgot about. But um, but but the but the local woman is there to greet him and is willing to accept death and uh, is also tormented in similar fashion. And then you get amazing lines when mm. Francesco discovers them together. Uh, where she's, it looks like she's making love with zombie Claudio, uh, but he's actually feeding on her. Mm. And she says, uh, leave me alone. He's only eating me. I'll be eaten by whoever I want. Um, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> so again, I keep thinking how, how, how interesting it must be to hear about this movie, having never seen it or seen a trailer, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's all through the movie, isn't it? Like those same sorts of cycles are being repeated. And mm. when Conrad, when you put it in the context of these, kind of containment images it makes a certain kind of sense yeah i mean it's another thing i thought when i was watching the movie was this is an adolescent's dream come true it's it's sort of explicit sex and nudity ridiculous over-the-top gore and zombies it's hilariously funny and it's full of existential angst exactly (laughs) yes as a 15 16 17 year old i would have loved this (laughs) I mean, I was listening to the director's commentary and the director was saying that he views Francesco as an adolescent, as somebody who is an adolescent in a secret garden who is unwilling to leave and face the real world. And his mm. what we see of the real world is his ridiculous projected view of it. What we see of women is his ridiculous projection of women. And he's just sort of stewing in his own darkly existential juices and not quite willing to grow up hmm. which is tricky when he's played by a man in his mid 30s so yeah it's weird because it's so he's so fashionable too like there's hmm. such uh you know i mean the way he smokes cigarettes the way he leans into the phone it's a very punctuated movie rhythmically so hmm. and maybe that does feed into the adolescence that you're talking about there is kind of a juvenile sense of cool to him Mm. And he's also the way he's so detached about uh, the tragedy of life and death because he's this cemetery caretaker. And part of the comedy comes from the fact that people are constantly coming into the cemetery wailing in anguish at the loss of someone. And he's standing off to the side, you know, having a cigarette, making tiny quips um, <laughs> that are actually quite funny. But it's it's hard to not take his detachment as being pretty clever and cool in a way. But yeah, to your point, there's something kind of inherently juvenile about it. I've never seen a movie that has portrayed death in such a flippant, carefree way because people just die Mm. all the time characters are introduced and immediately killed off and then killed again um, (laughs) by a rupert and throughout the movie he kind of cares less and less and even though his love keeps reappearing he doesn't care about her in the end and he ends up killing her by throwing a blanket over a heater Mm. i don't know i've never felt so unemotional about death before <laughs> watching a movie. Well, I think that's one of the one of the curious sort of tonal shifts as you get to the end of it is that they're not playing the violence for shock. 
anymore. Mm. You know, he's shooting people in the hospital and the whole thing is so matter of fact in the way it's happening. And, uh, and there's a really sick, twisted sense of humor, particularly when the nurses keep running in and panicking because there's dead people on the floor. He'll make a crack and then shoot somebody. And, and what's curious about it is what he's distraught about, what he cares about and, you know, what the, what the cinematography and the music and everything else plays as tragic is more the detachment he feels to his old friend who at that point in the movie is laying, you know, uh, laying on the bed and doesn't seem to remember who he is. Mm. Although it seems the guy has stolen his crimes and uh, is at least taking the rap for the murders that he initially was not trying too hard to escape the authorities on that matter. But by the end, Francesco is uh, almost screaming to the cop, mm. you know, I did it and no <laughs> one will arrest him. Uh, but yeah, it's the detachment that he feels with his friend that seems to be the tragedy. That's where you get the arch, like, you know, the, the, the overhead shot looking down on him kind of wailing mm. um, and his friend screaming, go away. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting. It's almost like the violence becomes incidental and it's a very, it just, you know, we're so used to, I think through the genre and, and often for good reason, needing to, you know, take that subject matter very seriously or always examine the impact of it to some degree. Um, and to see it used in this flippant way is a very curious effect. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, the hospital shootings, they almost just seem like punchlines to jokes. But again, it's it's got a sort of, it has almost got a nasty flavor to it at that point. The film is less funny in its final third. Yeah. It's still very dry, but it doesn't seem to be quite as funny. It seems to the the sort of tragedy of the thing seems to really set in at that point. Mm. It's one of those movies where it's just so extreme that the dramatic serious moments to me were funny unintentionally. So that hospital scene was just hilarious to me because people just kept running in and he just kept shooting them <laughs> or there, there was that one one part where he shoots a nurse and there's blood splatter everywhere and then the doctor just comes in and and says what are you doing on the floor sister and then he um francesco says she's praying <laughs> and then he proceeds to shoot him as well so it's just i don't know i found it hilarious even though it wasn't supposed to be. Mm. It's an odd combination of comedic stars, isn't it? Because it's halfway between an Italian farce and halfway between a very, very dry English sense of humour. Mm. And, and then Terry Gilliam sort of mixed in there as well. It's, so it's, yeah, on the whole, comedically, I've never seen anything quite like it, I don't think. I do think that you guys are onto something, though, that I, I feel like... You know, when I first put the movie back on for the first time, like the first scene is so well orchestrated, you know, and I, uh, I but you're laughing at the zombie horror in a way that you're more comfortable with. Mm. And then by the end, it's not that those kind of punctuated, you know, the, the punchlines, as you put it, Conrad, aren't, you know, they're not they're they're landing in the same way. And I'm I'm often laughing, but I'm also shaking my head and far more uncomfortable in the latter half of the film. Mm. And there's mm. this really pervasive sense of isolation that starts to set in yeah. throughout the movie. It's also got a pretty decent runtime, you know? So by the, mm. by the time you're getting there in this kind of amorphous, episodic, plotless kind of movie, uh, you don't know where you are. And the reality that he's in and you're in has broken down quite a bit. And I really do 
feel myself, you know, I was watching, I really did feel myself kind of grasping for something that wasn't there. Yeah. You know? And some of the times in movies like this, I find that it's just a sense of order. Like mm -hmm. I'm sort of lost with everything that's been put on the table and that becomes, you know, deeply unsettling. And so I did find myself oddly emotionally connected at the very end to when he kind of loses Naki for a second. Mm. and uh you know very overtly is saying you were my only friend and just the idea of being left only with nagi which is kind of where he started just it does have a very isolating you know resonance by the end of it that i i found palpable mm. yeah i i completely agree with the isolation um aspect because uh francesco he does get gradually just not care as much about death about killing people and he's he's so casual about it and it's, it's almost that sense of no matter what he does no one gives a shit kind of like he's he's almost he wants the attention <laughs> he wants to be locked up but no one's blaming him no one's uh, accusing him of any crimes and he still gets away with everything that he does yeah so it's almost nihilistic at the end isn't it it's nothing matters mm. there's a real bitter taste to it i think towards the end that I think is very different from the beginning when you're just reveling in the zombie mayhem. Uh, obviously, the big difference is he's shooting the living hmm, towards yes. the end. Yeah, so that there is that tonal shift. So the movie does have such a, a mixture of tones. So it is comedic and serious, but there are, there are a lot of very poetic scenes as well, like uh, mm. some of the scenes in the graveyard um, when he's making love mm. um, to the she character. And it's it's just beautifully lit, and there's there's silk and wind machines and all sorts of stuff, <laughs> and it's it's very art house. But then it's followed by a bunch of zombies and <laughs> terrible prosthetics being shot. Yeah, and all of these effects are all practical as well, yes. which is quite nice because this is 1994, so I guess the, there weren't many other options. But I do love the sort of blue fireflies. I'm not sure what they're oh, supposed yeah, yeah. to be. Yeah, loads of them being choreographed on wires during the sex scene. And it's yeah, it's kind of magical in a yeah. very simple way. <laughs> it's charming, yes. Yeah, it's charming. Like There's an initial resistance to it because it's kind of hokey, but then... You know, the actors are, but the, the tone of the performances I find are both, there is a wink to it, mm. you know? I mean, they're certainly in on the joke, but they're not, you know, it's not high camp necessarily. Like they, they are certainly diving into the themes and they're playing the emotion with a certain sense of melodrama. And mm. so you're, I find myself watching it kind of always wrestling between, you know, being detached and kind of laughing at it like I'm on the outside and I'm sort of appreciating the artifice of it. And getting getting drawn into the weird sincerity of it in moments like um, it has that kind of garish over the top kind of vibe and the way they're going for this stuff and talking in these big, broad, thematic ways, um, you know, uh, about love and death. And there's there's all these kind of poetic asides, you know, towards these topics that would be completely silly in any other context. But again, it's just something so weirdly sincere about it that you're kind of. I'm kind of charmed into it in mm -hmm. a sense, but um, uh, yeah. And another thing, you know, just along, you know, talking about the artfulness of it in general is it's really, I, I find myself excited watching it just, you know, by the way the cinema is utilized throughout, like mm -hmm. there's so many different incredible cinematic techniques and, and uh, you know, the director has so much fun getting us in and out of scenes. And, you know, we talked about, 
swirling cameras around two people making out when you want an over the top sense of romance and, uh, you know, the feeling of swirling and a kiss, but there are just a million of these mechanics employed, you know, throughout the movie that I, I think sometimes in modern filmmaking are seen as a little bit gimmicky and we've kind of gotten away from from that kind of playfulness and so just from a craft perspective i find myself looking at this and just going there's got to be you know it's 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 good to look back on this stuff and 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 look at these kinds of filmmaker moves and just think of how do they incorporate in the modern era where um i think we we just not as uh, bold and descriptive with the camera mm. as 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 he allowed himself to be one thing that it did remind me of was Sam Raimi's work in something like Evil Dead 2, mm-hmm. particularly the scene with the, the head launching itself across the room and getting a shot from inside the mouth as the teeth are gnashing. It's classic, ridiculous Raimi stuff. And all of those shots where they're using something called an InnerVision probe lens. So the opening shot starts inside a skull and pulls out of it to reveal the main character. And oh, there's another okay. scene where the camera retreats inside Nyagi's busted television and you have the the shards and flames around the edges of the frame so there are there are these sort of sam raimi-esque uh, flamboyant camera moves very inventive camera moves and there are also these great static beautifully framed shots like all the shots that are in the graves looking up at the sky with these uh, uh, cypresses looking like um, denuded fangs sort of surrounding the the edge of the grave and the the mourners surrounding looking looking down at them there are some really beautiful shots in there that you feel were inspired by the the original comics the the Dylan Dog comic strips although I've never seen them so it's sort of a combination of really beautiful flowing camera movement and jokey camera movement and also just beautifully framed shots so visually it's it's quite the feast to look at as well Hmm. yeah that scene that that opening scene uh it almost looked animated like it almost looked like it was stop motion or something it was quite strange to look at Mm. i think one thing that does kind of uh, it lets the film down but as at the same time it is charming was the effects and the set design i mean it looked great but Every gravestone kind of looked like you could just push it over with with a, a gentle nudge, um, kind of similar to <laughs> Plan Nine from Outer Space or something. If you just jumped <laughs> on the ground, everything would just topple over. Another effect that was hilarious uh, was the fly that is buzzing around um, the she character's um, corpse, and it's obviously just a black dot on a string. Uh, that they're just kind of waving around. It's so, it's, and you can see the string as well. Um, same, same with those light, the the little flaming lights that you mentioned, Conrad. Mm. I I just saw them as as flaming marshmallows that they just put on <laughs> pieces of wire and they were just kind of <laughs> prodding around. It was pretty pretty hilarious. About the the joke during the bus accident. So the bus goes off the road. And he's got quite a bit of spectacle. So initially the bus hits uh, a bunch of bikers. This is in the Claudio death scene where they're all coming around the side of the mountain. Yes. Uh, and the mayor's daughter. And, and so there's a sort of large grisly pile up where they did a good bit of coverage and use some kind of old fashioned cinematic techniques. But then the bus uh, apparently drives off the side of the mountain right where they got to the edge of their budget. He just cuts to a horse <laughs> oh. and you see the horse 
play a, a, a reaction to the sound of a bus landing at the bottom of the mountain. Yeah. I, I cackled out loud at that one. So what did we think of the score by Manuel de Sica? Uh, yeah, the, the score was interesting. It was very synthetic and <laughs> a lot of fake orchestra sounds in there. A bit hokey, but uh, I kind of think it, it added to it. It kind of emphasized the scenes even more. I think the main theme is quite memorable. I think so. Also, yeah. you know, again, this being a movie I had seen many times in the past, like it was, uh, yeah, that stuck with me note for note. Like, and it was, uh, I just, I, I love the playfulness um, and it's pretty twisted. It's also used very well in the scenes. Um, I think he, he orchestrates revelation really well. Mm. Again, this is a movie where you're constantly looking to find the point and the meaning of it. And so you're sort of, you're out to see as an audience member. And so sometimes when he drops in that central melody and, uh, and it's, and it's working alongside, you know, an inventive camera move, you, you get the sense that we're, we're coming to the point that something's going to be summarized here. And oftentimes it is, and it isn't, but, Mm. um, yeah, I find it was very playfully orchestrated and, it's kind of always taking you in, in new directions. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the kind of synthesizer score that I'd, I've never been all that fond of. So I prefer the, the classic late 70s, 80s era synthesizer score where synths sounded like synths, analog synths. So John Carpenter, Tangerine Dream, mm. you know, that it creates an aesthetic all of its own. This is more from the mid-90s period where there was a shift towards uh, sampling acoustic instruments, sampling orchestras, and trying to sound as though it's an orchestral score when it really isn't. Um, so it to me, it just comes across as... Um, a little bit cheap, sort of like a cable TV movie from the mid-90s. Yeah, I, I feel like they didn't really uh, process the samples so much. Like, compare it to uh, the film Razorback that we covered in a previous mm. episode, which is very, very, it's drenched in reverb and delay and all sorts of effects, whereas this was almost quite dry and it just sounded straight from the box kind of thing. Mm. And there's even one scene where, where the Nagi character is playing. I don't even know what instrument that is. It (laughs) just looks like a a piece of wood that he's (laughs) bowing. Um, But it it just sounds like a synth keyboard that he's playing. (laughs) Yeah, it does. But goodness only knows what the actual sound was that he was producing on set. (laughs) Probably nothing. (laughs) Probably nothing. No. Now it's time for Random Trivia. Dan, it's over to you for some amazing trivia. What have you got for us this time? So this movie was very arty, a lot of visually stunning scenes. So uh, one of the scenes is when uh, Francesco and the love interest are kissing in the crypt. And and she says, no, not like this. And she puts a shroud over his face and she's also got a, a veil over hers. And then they kiss that way. Apparently that shot has a direct influence from a painting by uh, René Magritte. I don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just Magritte. Magritte, René Magritte. Uh, I think he's a French painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, there's a painting of his called The Lovers, which uh, has two lovers with shrouds over their heads uh, kissing. So nice little art reference there for art historians out there. Yeah, always good to quote the classics. <laughs> yes. And that's our trivia 
a moment. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the sound, I guess we have to mention that this is a very Italian production in terms of all the sound was recorded in post. Mm. So all the dialogue, it seems, although some of the scenes, the dialogue did sound like it was on location, but yeah, yeah 90% of it was done with dubbing later on and they didn't process it to make it sound like it was outside or inside. It just all sounded the same and people <laughs> sounded close no matter how far away from the camera they were. Mm. Uh, that was pretty funny. Yeah, that, that's something about Italian films that always makes me feel as though they, they feel really sort of hyper-real because all of the voices are uh, recorded after the fact. Yes. And there's no attempt to try and make it sound real in any way. It sort of, yeah, makes it very hyper-real. Yeah. I always wonder if the effect of that, you know, style is often born from some kind of utility. So who knows if it's budgetary or if it's, uh, you know, just speaking to the technology of an era. Again, this was 94, so it wasn't that long ago. But uh, did it become fashionable to treat things in certain ways? You know, I always think about little details like the sound of the gun. Mm. The gunshot is a very specific sound that's repeated endlessly throughout the movie. And it's oftentimes it feels like it's the same sample oh, repeated over and over again. So it sounds the same, whether to your point, whether he's in the house or he's out in the graveyard or he's in a hospital and it's not trying to immerse you in the realism of anything, mm. but it does kind of lean towards this At times. It has like a slight slapstick kind of cartoon quality to it. Hmm because everything's mixed down in that fashion. And, um, you know, maybe it's just looking back on it from this vantage point and kind of fetishizing that aesthetic a bit. Like I sort of I kind of loved it, you know, mm. but, uh, but in the way that, in the way that you love cinematic artifacts in a sense. Yeah. Know? I think with these uh, Italian Jello films, it does create a, a sense of, another world like a world that you wouldn't normally see in cinema in hollywood cinema where i mean it, it often is all in post as well but it's all very perfectly polished and mixed in but with this it, it almost seems quite awkward sometimes some of the scenes because you know there's not enough sound that they would be walking along and you, you wouldn't hear the footsteps or he would slap the table and you wouldn't hear a sound mm. or something like that so it does kind of project you into this other world that isn't really reality. Yeah, and it inadvertently plays into the theme of the film, maybe, that, that they are in this enclosed alternative uh, space, although I'm sure that wasn't what was intended. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's the, as you say, David, it, it could be one of these these artifacts that w was just a utilitarian matter of fact when the film was made that somebody at some point is going to slavishly reproduce artificially at some point in the same way that Tarantino did Grindhouse and mm. and um, oh, what was that movie recently where they made it look as though it was filmed in the seventies, even oh. to the point where they had cigarette burns in the corner. Um, Ouija Origin of Evil, evil. yeah. Yeah, it's a sort of thing that yeah, it's like um, we've spent all this time sort of advancing recording techniques to the point where you've gotten rid of the vinyl cracks and the tape hiss, and now everybody is artificially putting in vinyl crackle and tape hiss. Yep. It's, yep. <laughs> it's, it's really funny how these things go in cycles. So I wonder if at some point somebody will try to recreate a Giallo movie with bad Foley. Yeah. <laughs> I think, too, sometimes it's it's completely... It's not even a conscious decision because 
I, you know, so much of the movie process happens quickly mm-hmm. and on the fly and you have to find your way through that. And you, you sit in an audio mix and somebody, you know, you're dialing in the reverb quality of a, of a piece of audio. And in my experience, it's just three or four people in a room and the final mix and somebody going, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why, but that sounds good. I like it when it's brighter or bolder, you know, or, or somebody may say, no, it sounds like they're right in front of us and they're in the back other room. And I want to feel like I'm where the camera is in some sort of realistic fashion. Um, all the, the variance between those decisions is very intuitive. Mm-hmm. And so I just think, I think, I don't know. I think it's worth saying, I think sometimes those emulations aren't even conscious, you know, mm-hmm. it's just a, reflection of the things that we've loved and but I, I always like looking at it that way because it's um it's useful to think that there's that realism doesn't really exist and that everything is a stylistic choice mm-hmm. whether it's harking back to another era or not um it all is a communication device about something because mm. you know the second you do, you work with an audio mix you know you usually start with way too much sound and so you're trying to reprodu- reproduce all the sounds in a living room. Well, that doesn't sound good in a movie. So you have to reduce it to essential elements. And to your point, Dan, with this, it gets reduced sometimes to only the things that punctuate the visual beats. Mm-hmm. And that has a certain flavor to it and adds to that kind of symphonic cartoon, you know, roller coaster ride that you're on. Mm. You know, I've used words like slapstick today. Like, I feel mm. like it leans into that in yeah. a similar fashion. But, uh, uh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think because uh, I am a sound designer, so I think people forget that cinema sound isn't reality, that, you know, punches don't sound li- like that in real life, or footsteps aren't as audible in real life. So I think people have a, have a expectation to what they think a movie should sound like. And because jello movies don't sound like that it sounds strange it doesn't sound real but even though movie sound isn't real as well because most of it is is done in post Mm. yeah i think people forget that that movies aren't real (laughs) as a designer do you find a lot of variance in people's tastes and flavors for simple things yes uh i i've worked with directors that don't want anything jarring so everything is very smoothed out and cuts are very smoothed out in terms of audio um, fading in and out i've worked with directors that are very influenced by quentin tarantino who was very he loves big sound and everything to be way bigger sounding than they should be and gritty and um so yeah it, it it depends on the director and and they will have their say every time and it's always different mm. in the ritual it sound i felt was a very important part we we had a we had a great team in the ritual uh i learned a lot from watching our design team and then uh and then assimilating you know the team of designers we had a really great foley team as well some of the densest most articulate detailed foley work i'd ever seen yes. and uh but bringing them together with the mixer and our composer, who is someone that I've been working with uh, for a long time, and assembling everybody in a room um, was fun. It was a great collaboration. But I always find, again, and maybe uh, maybe movies are done in quicker time frames now. Uh, maybe this is just the way of the world. I, I, I like to imagine back in the day, people had a little bit more space to breathe and kind of make stylistic dis- decisions. I mean, in my opinion... In my experience, it is often such a tight window 
you're just trying to survive it and get it done yeah. and get it up to a certain measure of quality. And that's why it always becomes completely intuitive. Mm. Oftentimes the movie is, this is what you could get away with given the circumstances in yeah. a certain amount of time. And uh, whatever stylistic flourishes exist up there are often, uh, you know, a fragment of what you hope to achieve. Mm. And, uh, and by the time you're done, you're just, you know, you're just eager to show the movie to people and see, uh, well, what remains? What still comes across here? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, how close did we get? Because you've lost perspective on it. Which, yeah. uh, you know, to bring it back to something like Cemetery Man, is is why I, I have such an appreciation looking at this movie again and just realizing how whether it holds up for us or not, and to whatever degree, I I just found that it was incredibly artfully executed on almost every level. Like there mm-hmm. there were a lot of decisions and choices being made. Um, as far as how, uh, how the beats would be rendered and articulated. And um, I found myself in, uh, as an independent filmmaker, um, often without a lot of money and either helping on films or my own films, you know, getting tossed in the situation and you're just trying to cover it in a way to make the day. So, you know, something like this is just, just chocked full of meaning. Every scene's opening on an interesting image. There's tons of flourish uh, you know, between the scenes, the camera's always moving. Um, there's a lot of orchestration within the images. So I just have such appreciation for it because all that takes time and energy and planning and, you know, resources you sometimes don't have. Yes. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theater, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Yes, it's that time where we nominate some of our favourite aspects of the movie in a bunch of categories that are entirely useless. Uh, <laughs> kicking off, as we always do, with our favourite quote from the movie. Uh, the film is so beautifully written. I'm fairly certain that everybody will have multiple nominations for this. My personal favourite is one of Francesco's many ruminations on life and death. He says... At a certain point in life, you realise you know more dead people than living, Mm. which (laughs) is a very glass-half-empty kind of statement. It reminded me of Arthur C. Clarke's foreword to 2001, where he said, Behind every man now alive stands 30 ghosts, for that is the ratio by which the dead outnumber the living. Mm. Yeah, that was my my favourite glasses-half-empty quote from Francesco. Any other nominations? Yeah, uh, I mean, I can just say, as a general appreciation of the dialogue, I mean, again, watching it last night, I just, there's so many little exchanges that can only exist in a movie like this that I find myself just laughing at the style of, uh, but just appreciating the the gusto to kind of go for it. When he picks up the two uh, young college women and they're, uh, he's sitting in the car and they're trying to invite him in. Anna Fauci comes in and leans against the window and she says to him, he's reluctant to go in, and she says to him, uh, make a wish. And he lights a cigarette and he says, I want you to fall in love with me. And then she leans in and lights her cigarette off of his flame and says, but I'm already in love with you. Yes. You know, and like, it's, it's uh, again, I always find myself laughing in those moments, but they, they really kind of swing for it. And there's a certain um, wink to it that's, kind of a blast yeah uh i think there's like there must be a hundred moments like that in the movie just strange little punctuated exchanges that feel 
lost to me in movies these days. I think we're just we, we just speak in a different language now. Mm. Yeah, none of the dialogue in this movie, you would say, is something that normal human beings would say to each other. No. <laughs> Absolutely. Because none of these situations happen to normal people. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this, this is true. Well, hopefully not. Dan, what was your favourite quote? Um, so my favourite quote was uh, the very poetic uh, final scene where they've reached the end of the world, as it seems, and he's just sitting on the cliff. Um, and Nagi has has died, I I guess. Um, and so Francesco says, "Death, death, death comes sweeping down. Filthy death, the leering clown. Death on wings, death by surprise. Failing evil from worldly eyes. Death that spawns as life succumbs. While death and love, two kindred drums." keep the time till judgment day an actor in a passion play without beginning without end evermore amen and yeah <laughs> very shakespearean soliloquy almost there and again not the kind of thing that you would just would just roll off the tongue in an everyday <laughs> no. situation <laughs> okay our next category would be and we change the decade by movie our next category is what's the most 90s thing about this movie david would you like to go first is there a, something in here that just screams 90s to you I mean, I, I feel like this is a movie hearkening back to a different era. I agree. Yeah, it's I, I honestly have a hard time zeroing in on the 90s anyway. Um, maybe it's <laughs> yeah. because I was a kid and, you know, and uh, could barely <laughs> could barely see the forest through the trees anyhow. But um, to me, that's a less describable decade than the 80s or even, you know, the aughts in some ways. But uh, hmm. I, I, and in cinema, I guess, yeah, there's, I don't know, I'd have to think about it. I'd have to think about it. No, I'm really pleased to hear you say that because this is a pet theory of mine that every other decade that you name, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, gives you a, re you get really strong visual images in terms of fashion, architecture, art, movies, music. And if you say 90s, for me, it's a barren wasteland of, <laughs> of nothing particularly memorable. And I will always disagree. <laughs> you do because you were a child of the 90s. Yes, so, the, What I've written down as the most 90s part of this movie was just Rupert Everett was the most 90s. <laughs> because he, he plays this very kind of Hugh Grant character. He's charming and a little bit carefree and his messy hair and upturned eyebrows always looks worried. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Rupert Everett, the most 90s part of this movie. Good answer. For me, it was Rupert's big shirt. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, just this idea of wearing this voluminous shirt that's at least eight sizes too big when you're cut like he is <laughs> underneath it. It's a very big shirt he's wearing, and he's wearing the same one throughout the entire movie as well, which is yeah, <laughs> quite something. Um, best hair or costume? I, I would say Claudio's uh, motorcycle riding zombie get-up is probably worth <laughs> mentioning. It was pretty uh, badass, yeah. It's pretty badass, it's totally over the top, and has a couple oddly haunting beats. Because some of the zombies in the movie speak, and Claudio zombie doesn't speak, he just kind of stares down at his former lover with a grin while revving the engine um, of his motorcycle. Mm. But yeah, I would say the the fact that he's still got bus parts in his head um, yeah. 
maybe we maybe we can call that wardrobe for the sake of this podcast and uh, say <laughs> that would be my answer. Okay, so favorite scene. I really loved the severed head scene. So uh, <laughs> Valentina's severed head is inside the TV as Nagi is talking to her. Um, and then her father, the mayor, walks in and she yeah flies across the room, as you mentioned, David. Uh, the camera inside her mouth proceeds to bite the mayor's neck. And just a ridiculous and, and unpredictable and completely out of the blue, crazy, insane scene there i loved it yeah it's it's the same one that i was thinking of as well <laughs> it kind of stands apart from the rest of the movie i think yeah so david i've got one yeah so this is a tiny little like a very specific little beat but i was talking earlier about just appreciating the way the director handled the revelations um it's a scene in the middle of the movie where he meets Anna Fauci's character for the second time he she's already died he thought come back and he shot her and he believes that he killed her uh, upon her, her her resurrection, her reanimation. It's just a very artful sequence where he's lured out to the graveyard and the opening image is a is an image of a, a of the planet Earth in statue on top of uh, one of the tombstones and behind it is the reflection of the moon um, in in one of the the, the small cemetery ponds. Mm -hmm. And so it starts like this kind of cosmic reference and uh, racking from the moon to the to earth and you don't know what you're looking at and the camera pulls back and you realize this is just a little tableau in the graveyard and we reveal Francesco coming and walking in. And, uh, and they really enjoy the build and it's one of those moments where, the, where the, the, the music and the camera work quite well as he slowly comes to realize that there's a presence next to him and that it's her upon return. And when she's finally revealed they just completely swing for the fences and she's standing there, arms craned up with uh, her rags kind of blowing in the wind and she's backlit. Oh. And she comes to him and, yeah. uh, and they instantly begin to make out. They, they uh, are instantly drawn into their love for one another and then of course she bites him. And the whole thing's a bit arch and goofy in all the right ways, but I just think it's a wonderfully orchestrated bit. Yeah. Mm. Moving on to our next category... Um, is there a most cliched horror or fantasy, maybe, moment in this movie? Um, for me, I always fall back on the, uh, the obligatory thunderstorm. And of course, in this case, the thunderstorm happens during the melodramatic I want you to cut off my penis scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's almost like a, a mad professor resurrecting Frankenstein's monster or something, yeah. There's also a big needle in there as well. Very, very large needle. I'm not entirely sure what it's really for. Horses, I would think. <laughs> David, how about you? Did you have a cliched horror moment in this? I have to say, I feel like I've been so immersed in things of a more refined taste of late that all the kitschy, gimmicky horror beats um, felt quite refreshing, you know, on, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, in, in this October that is 2018 for me to watch this movie for the first time in a long time, I just had a particular affinity for all of them. I mean, there's many that have been done a thousand times and they've, it, we've found better ways to do them. Um, but I just thought that, it, you know, em, embracing the material of that stuff um, was, it, 
frankly educational for me. So I I, mm. I celebrate it in full, I, but I may feel different than on another watch. Mm. <laughs> and our final category, funniest scene, either advertently or inadvertently. <laughs> My nomination for this would actually be the, the Boy Scouts with the clacking teeth um, <laughs> yeah. attacking Francesco when he's fresh out of the shower and Yagi's just trying to have his dinner and watch War Blob on TV. Um, oh yeah, whatever that is. <laughs> um, Dan, how about you? Um, I've actually already mentioned it. So the hospital scene where people just keep keep running in, and he keeps just shooting them one by one. Um, and I know David, you you mentioned how you like the part where it kind of pans up and and it shows this hospital operating theater that just seems to be in the middle of nothing. Um, but I found it really funny because. Uh, his his friend Franco just yells out, "Go away!" and it just pans up, and there's this dramatic music, and it, it reminded me of of, of um one of the Star Wars prequels where it has yeah. this big pan shot out, and Darth Vader's just saying, "No!" <laughs> oh God, yeah, yeah. And, and Lucas even ruined Return of the Jedi with that thing as well. <laughs> it's such a shame. Because David Prowse does such a fantastic bit of physical acting in Return of the Jedi where he's looking down at his son and he's looking up at the Emperor and the way they've lit the mask, it looks very different from the one aspect to the other. It goes from sympathy to anger just because of the way it's highlighting the grills oh, on the right. mouth. And it's so well done and they've, yeah, but for some reason they've decided on the, the current version that we're all subjected to that we <laughs> needed to have Vader saying no <laughs> as well terrible but yeah let's not go down that rabbit hole <laughs> uh david how about you for funniest scene i i don't have a specific scene so much as to say that i laughed a lot throughout the movie at the way <laughs> rupert everett plays the indifference to to death and the tragedy yes. of death. Mm. And uh, it's a really nuanced thing. And I think, uh, Conrad, to your point, it speaks to the kind of the dry British humor of it. And he's uh, he's just always kind of making small quips and asides, you know, uh, on what's happening. And I, there's one little moment that I cannot describe uh, in a way that will do it any justice. It was after he accidentally shoots um, the Italian lover of Claudio and He's been shooting the dead, and this is the first time we realize that he's crossed that threshold, and he's initially stunned. And you almost expect the movie to enjoy a register change on this. And uh, moments later, he's reburying Claudio, and he throws her in there and, you know, finishes the last scoop of dirt, lights a cigarette, and he goes, well, at least they get to be together forever. And Nagi is kind of distraught, and uh, Everett looks over at him, and there's just a beat, and he kind of shrugs. He's like, buh. You know, what? he kind of mocks Nagi's pain in this moment. It's like, what are you going to do? And goes back to the house. And it's moments like that, you know, or when the mayor freaks out when he sees the headless corpse of his daughter, yeah. where uh, he just sets the side, he just say, uh, you know, plot thickens. And uh, it really works. And it's a testament to Everett's performance throughout. But I think it's all through the movie and, and goes to in weird places. Yeah, it's marvelous. <laughs> So that's our Mooblies. Yes.
Right, it's final verdict time. And now we have to decide whether this returnee from the other side should be shot in the head and and dismissed with a blunt quip, or whether it deserves to be left to roam free and to chomp on its own father. (laughs) Dan, (laughs) what did you make of this movie? And do you think it should be saved? I mean, I'm in really two minds because I love movies like this that I know are terrible. I mean, the production and, and every acting, the dubbing, the music, everything is terrible, but I loved it at the same time. I had <laughs> I had a blast watching it. I laughed almost every minute. Rupert Everett <laughs> was standout amazing. And... I like watching movies that don't really make any sense that that make you go, "What did I just watch?" <laughs> so, I mean, my my serious film critic mind would say, "Yes, throw it back into the hole." But my enjoying B grade horror comedies would say, "Yeah, set it free." I would. I don't know. I'm. I'm. Re- yeah. I'm torn. How about you, David? Mm. I mean, I I had a blast watching this again. I mean, I think <laughs> it's such a it's such an interesting time in horror, and people are taking risks they haven't taken before. Um, but there is a deficit right now of kind of classic horror comedy, like at least tonally in the states. I don't feel like we know how to manage that the same way we used to. And the ability to be kind of flip about serious subjects um, does capture a certain uh, nihilism or malaise, which I do think is present in kind of the current moment in in the world. And um, Mm. so it has a place for me in that regard. Some of it doesn't age well. You know, I think, you know, we've had some conversations today about the you know, kind of some of the adolescent sensibilities and then some of the sexual politics will look differently to us now looking back. I think also, you know, the the flip nature of the mass violence. I mean, you know, when we were watching this for me in, in 1997 in college or something, it's like it had a different meaning. You could do that and it simply be representative of something. Now you have somebody running around, you know, shooting live people in a public place and it calls to mind a whole new host of images. And so there's a certain innocence about it that I think looking at it in the context in which it existed, uh, I think you can have a a certain appreciation for it that, that that maybe, yeah, again, would look different in today's terms, but, uh, but I, I love it. I have an affinity for what it's trying to do, uh, the bug nuts nature of it. I think this kind of material would, inspire new filmmakers to do different things in different directions that maybe they're not expecting. And, uh, and I found it really refreshing. Yeah. (laughs) Please release it. Please allow it to exist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for my part, I thought that it was, it was quite a revelation. I love discovering movies like this that I have never heard of before because uh, it's as you as you go on in years, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the, the opportunity to discover something from the 80s or 90s that you haven't heard of or seen before, it becomes increasingly rare. And, and this one really was a treat. I think there are n- numerous things. It's just so artfully produced. It's such a visual feast. 
in terms of its writing, it's so beautifully written in a way that you very rarely see now. You never hear people delivering dialogue that is as thoughtfully constructed as this, even if it does have the sensibility of a teenager going through his goth poetry phase. Um, <laughs> but it's it's... It's just such a, a rare thing and also it's just so absolutely batshit crazy, plotless, episodic and rambling, but it has this strange sort of rhyming structure to it from the beginning to the end and a real sense of development and pathos and connection to these two characters that are going through these experiences that it still kind of works. It doesn't sort of completely alienate its audience. You do get drawn into it. Mm. So... I think it's a it's a really unique film. It's a quite quite the gem, and I do wish that more people had come across it. Even though, yes, it's it hasn't aged well in some aspects, but I still think the people who love this type of movie will get a real kick out of seeing it if they've never come across it before. So, I think more people should see it, and I would vote for it being released into mm. the wild. Awesome! All right, be gone, be gone. Escape the cemetery. (laughs) (laughs) So the question now is, what movie will we be taking a look at next time? Well, I thought it's a while since we did some fantasy. We haven't done anything like that since Willow. So I thought we would throw ourselves back into 13th century Europe and see the magic that is... Ladyhawk. Oh, <laughs> I've heard so much about this movie and I've never actually seen it. It's It's got such an amazing pedigree. I mean, it, it stars Matthew Broderick, Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer. It's directed by Richard Donner, the man behind Superman and The Omen. Yeah, so by all accounts, it should be an absolute classic. Um, yeah. I've seen it once, but not since, so okay. it should be... <laughs> And you haven't seen it. No, can't so, wait to yeah. check it out. It sounds, it sounds <laughs> amazing. It's Yes, it's an interesting one. Well, thanks a lot, David, for joining us on this uh, journey <laughs> through the cemetery. <laughs> it's been an absolute joy having you on. Thank you so much, Guy. I mean, I really, this is a blast and uh, has been amazingly refreshing. And I've enjoyed diving in with you guys in all ways that is Cemetery Man. So it's been fantastic. Thank you. So if people want to follow your exploits, how would they do so? Uh, I'm on Twitter under Brock Machina. And uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. And um, what are you working on next? Is there anything you can tell us about? I read online that you're working on a movie written by the authors of um, Super Dark Times, which was a film I watched very recently and Ooh. really enjoyed. So I was excited about that. Oh, they will be happy to hear that. Uh, yeah, Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski, uh, amazing writing team. They um, actually uh, adapted my VHS short into a feature uh, for Chiller Network called Siren. And um, uh, and then Super Dark Times is a fantastic movie, and they have uh, a lot of great scripts. And um, The Night House is a, a very, very, it's kind of a creepy riff on Haunt um, about a, a woman who eight days after uh, her husband's unexpected suicide is uh, uh, visited by an entity that may or may not be him. And... Um, but uh, but it's deeply original and it's a movie that we're fighting very hard to get made. And we think um, a lot of great 
people have come back, gotten behind it. So I'm very optimistic we will be shooting it very soon. And uh, my hope is uh, that that will be the next one. But there's many things in the works. Mm. Thank you for asking. Uh, also, listeners, please do watch The Ritual, which is currently streaming on Netflix. It's amazing. Mm. It is, yeah. It's a fantastic film. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a British horror movie. I think it would be would be fair to say. I don't know if it was funded as such, but yep. it's certainly a British cast. Who was the lead actor? Uh, Rafe Spall, yeah. Uh, Rafe Spall, and it was produced by The Imaginarium, which is Andy Serkis' production company based out of London. Oh, so, right. Yeah, um, it's a, a full-blooded British film. I, I was a guest American director, which was uh, an interesting journey. So, But uh, yeah, it's on Netflix. and um, I don't know if it's on Netflix in the UK at the moment. I don't know that it is. It's on Amazon Prime, actually, in the right. UK. And it's still available. And I do recommend everyone checking it out. There are some images in there that, are, that haunted me for a long time afterwards. I mean, in particular, I, I do love the scenes where Rafe Spall's character's trauma sort of bleeds into his current reality. Oh, yes. The, the sort of the sight of fluorescent lighting in the middle of a forest is really quite striking. <laughs> yeah, it put me in mind of the dream sequences in American Werewolf in London where Dave Norton comes across his hospital bed in the middle of the forest. Oh, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, rare movie where you, you get to the point where you think, ah, is it just going to be all psychological and you're not going to see the monster? But you do see the monster, and even better, the monster is amazing. Mm. <laughs> Kudos on that one. Uh, thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Also, American Werewolf in London, very much a reference point for us. So. Ah. <laughs> so please do follow David on Twitter. And if you would like to follow us on our socials, we are everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, as Movie Oubliette. And if you're not sure how to spell Oubliette, it is... Sorry, I'm a bit preoccupied shooting all these zombies. What was that? And as always, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you are using. It really helps us out. Because this ego needs feeding, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Surely does. Um, also, our email is movie.oubliette at gmail.com. If you want to email us, uh, we always love your comments and suggestions for other movies to take a look at. Yes, indeed. So thanks for joining us, especially David. Thanks for being here with us to talk about this movie. Uh, guys, again... Uh Thanks so much. This has really been a blast. And um, I don't know, it, it, it's been a really refreshing, you know, take on this. And I really enjoyed how you guys saw the movie and what you brought to it. So as I've learned a bit about Cemetery Man through this conversation. So uh, I wish you the best of luck and thank you. You know, I hope we talk again. Mm, yes. So that's it for this episode of Movie Oubliette. Please join us next time on another epic journey of discovery. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie you'll be at. Go away. I haven't got time for the living.